Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Welcome back, fellow optimists. It's Sofia Tapia here, your host on the Future Positive Podcast, a podcast from XPRIZE that aims to bring you the most future-forward topics from the world's brightest minds. If you're new to Future Positive, in each episode, you'll hear from world leaders, creators, entrepreneurs, innovators, and changemakers who are paving the way for innovation on and off this planet we call home. Continuing our Pride Month podcast takeover, we bring you the second in our series of interviews conducted by journalist Amelia Abraham with leading figures from the LGBTQ community who are impacting our world for the better. This week, Amelia speaks to Oskies, a PhD candidate and lecturer at the University of Washington's Department of Human-Centered Design and Engineering. Oz was also the inaugural winner of the Otta Lovelace Fellowship. Their interests are in gender, disability, technology, and power, striving to understand the role technology plays in constructing the world and how it can be used to build a better one. Glad to have you back. Now let me turn it over to Amelia. Hey Oz, how are you? I'm good. How are you? Yeah, I'm very well, thanks. Can you tell us where in the world you are right now? Absolutely. So I am currently in Boston, Massachusetts, uh, United States, on a, a brief holiday, actually. Uh, but most of the time I'm based in Seattle, Washington, which is, is great because everyone assumes that it's a queer hub, and it is. But also, literally everyone in the city wears like Doc Martens and flannels and has an undercut. And so it gets really confusing. You're like, oh, this might be a community member. Oh, no, this is just some Seattleite, some <laughs> random person. Would you mind telling us a bit about your work, please, for anyone who doesn't know what you do? I, I'm a PhD candidate at the University of Washington. Generally, um, my projects are about looking at how new technologies, particularly around AI, offer the potential to either uh, destabilize or reinforce really rigid ideas of what gender is, and as a consequence, either destabilize or reinforce the systems of uh, power and control that tend to underpin uh, gender in, in practice. Got you. And you teach as well, right? I'm, I'm a professor at Seattle University in the philosophy department, which is hilarious to me because until two years ago, I not only didn't read philosophy, I, I actively loathed it. Um, because, because I, I don't know if this is anyone else's experience, but I'd be like, oh, I think I should probably, you know, engage with philosophy because I'm asking all these big questions like, what is the nature of justice that we're actually working towards? And then I would ask someone who came from a philosophy background, like, what should I read? And they'd give me, like, Immanuel Kant. 
and I'd read and I'd read like three pages and go, okay, I don't know what philosophy is, but what I do know is that it's not for me. And so it's kind of deeply funny to me to be in a philosophy department because as a, a queer first gen in the wrong continent, like I already have mounds of imposter syndrome around academia, but then dropping me in a philosophy department is sort of the, the cherry on the cake. Well, I would be really interested to hear what led you to this work um, and, and a bit of your personal story about how you became interested in this area of research. So I, I guess the projects, the project that really sort of kicked it off and I guess that we'll we'll probably talk about in more detail is is around uh, automated gender recognition which is basically facial recognition for trying to determine someone's gender it's great because someone looked at facial recognition and said this is awful and has clearly like negative social effects what could we do to make it worse as that suggests I'm not a big fan but it is kind of key to my my sort of trajectory because basically what happened is I had this I had this really nice lovely hopeful idea and that idea was that having having worked out first that I wanted to go into academia and second that I was trans I would go to grad school switch all the people I hang out with like switch the spaces I'm in pick that as a moment to come out come out go on live my life be a academic studying whatever I wanted um, and, and go on unfortunately what happened in practice was that I went to grad school came out discovered that coming out is a continuous process and that pretty much everyone expects you to be a gender expert, particularly in a very like STEM heavy department, just for being there. And also that a lot of the work that people do is not very informed by like sort of critical or politically engaged approaches to questions of gender or questions of power. And so even though I had to, I started off with this idea of like, I'll come out and then I'll go study I don't know, Wikipedia, um, which was my focus at the time. What happened in practice was that I ended up having to think about gender and having to talk about gender constantly as part of my work. And at a certain point, you're like, if I'm going to be expected to be an amateur gender scholar, I may as well go professional and actually get credited for it. And and so I ended up specializing in, in part in questions of, of sort of gender and technology, not so much because I'd ever intended to do so, but because it sort of comes with the territory. Like I end up having strong opinions about uh, gender for the same reason that I end up having strong opinions about disability, because even if I didn't write papers about it, people would still be asking me questions. So you kind of, you're an expert by default. Yeah, exactly. Like, <laughs> like you, there's this great idea, I think of um, that, that sort of like you're, you're born and, or, or you like, come out or whatever like the inflection point you pick is and like Judith Butler shows up in like uh, a chariot like pulled by drag queens and just delivers queer theory into your frontal lobe and now everyone gets to ask you questions because you are the encyclopedia of theory and of course in practice it doesn't work like that but that doesn't stop people from pretending. Right and in terms of your interest in technology growing up was tech a big part of your life have you always been a kind of techie person? I, I was kind of like the stereotypical nerdy, swatty kid, right? My first job was a librarian. Um, I'll be perfectly honest. So so I've always been sort of very sort of knowledge driven. And I've also always been very sort of technologically engaged. You know, I can remember using computers by when I was about five or so, which and, and then started using the internet when I was about nine, which God knows what that did to my brain. And, and like had a computer at home from the age of like 12 or so and was designing websites like before I, I hit double digits, not good websites, mind you, we're talking like sort of 
GeoCity-style websites, but websites. And, and so technology was this constant thread in my life. And, and I actually eventually ended up first working for the Wikimedia Foundation, which runs Wikipedia for about five years, and then becoming a sort of industry data scientist for a couple of years. And so there is this continuous thread of, of being engaged with technology in some way. But weirdly, if you told me that I was going to go off and be a, a data scientist, right, like someone who uses code to do maths for a living, um, I would have laughed at you because I was despite being really interested in technology, actually appalling at maths and physics and like just the sciences generally. I just didn't really get it at the time. And and so it very much feels like simultaneously like, okay, I can look back and see there's this trajectory of, I was always engaged with technology. I was always doing stuff with computers, but simultaneously that it feels like I'm almost like running to catch up um, because it wasn't until like my early to mid twenties that I started going like, okay, computers are not just a thing I can use. They're also a thing I can like do things with, do things to manipulate. Right. I was wondering what role has technology played in your life as a trans person specifically? That is a great question. Um, so I'm trying to think of the, the easiest summary. I guess I'd say uh, immense, but but in weird ways. So like I was a, a bi person who didn't know that there was language for that. And then I was a trans person who didn't know there was language for that. And and in both cases, uh, technology has been phenomenally powerful in, in a couple of ways. The first is, is to just give me access to more people, more information. Like literally the way I found out that there was the term bisexual or that trans people existed and were a thing you could be was through like internet relay chat in like the early 2000s. And and so there's always been that sort of very positive thread of, of knowledge. And there's also been a strong positive thread of community. You know, trans Twitter is such an immense source of strength and joy and weird in-jokes. I can't really like demonstrate how strongly like technology ties communities together, particularly queer communities, because where there isn't necessarily a, certainly not a single geographic point you can like point to, then literally yesterday I was, I was out in Salem, Massachusetts, the site of all the witch trials. And I, I ran into another trans person in a bookshop. And when we were like chatting, the first thing we exchanged was Twitter handles. And we found that we already followed like five or six people in common. Like, I don't even live on this coast. Uh, I live on the other side of the continent. And this is a person I've never met before. But that is how, like, intertwined the technological spaces can make, like, trans bonds. And that's really powerful and really valuable. There are also sort of more negative contexts and, and connotations. One of the big ones, of course, is that bigots have communities too, turns out, and also like the internet. Um, and so you get a lot of, well, just straight up bigotry on, on Twitter, on Tumblr, on any space that you, you name to, you, you choose to name. And I always, I often try and think of this harm, I guess, as sort of twofold. The first is obviously the direct harm of just dealing with that kind of shit. The second though, and the one that I'm still sort of turning around in my head is, is how it primes newly out people to think of queer life. And, and sort of like, like if, if, if your exposure to queerness is through the same platform as your exposure to queerphobia, then on the one hand, like various forms of queerphobia are a common part of life. But on the other hand, like there's no real world equivalent of quote tweeting people or, or sort of like, I guess, being dogpiled after, just after you wake up in the morning. And so I often wonder about like how we maybe, um, end up sort of like primed to expect like a particularly aggressive form of, of uh, rejection that isn't 
the most common part of, of transphobia. To pick up on what you said there, the internet can be a really, really important safe space for LGBTQ plus people. And it's really important that we, we actively try to keep these spaces safe. This brings us back to automated gender recognition technology, because this is actually being used already on certain platforms, isn't it? I think your research is, is looking at the threats that could pose to the LGBT community. So I wanted to start just by asking you, where is this already being used? Automated gender recognition which, like I said, is is facial recognition for detecting gender. There are sort of three, I guess, use cases, as technologists put it, like ideas of how it should be used that motivate a lot of the work. The first is access control. The second is analytics. And the third is computing purposes. And what are some of the issues with this technology? So around access control, like the idea seems to be if you have like gender segregated spaces like say toilets or swimming pool changing rooms then you can use automated gender recognition as a way of sort of like flagging people who are there but shouldn't be there and this sounds like a sort of like outlandish out there use case but unfortunately it's actually a pretty widely recognized one and it's deeply shall we say uh, dangerous possibilities of basically having security called on people who don't look feminine enough to be women or ha or don't look masculine enough to be men are, are pretty widely recognized almost as, as features in some ways. There was a report by the National Institute of Standards in Technology or NIST, which was on gender recognition and actively advertised like, oh, it could be really good to like have this installed at bathrooms and we can like call security when someone is flagged who shouldn't be there. And like specifically, they were specifically getting at, you know, a lot of the myths around bathrooms as the site of like sexual assault or harassment, particularly the myths around like queer people as the perpetrators of such assaults. That Examples of that being used for like that kind of directly gendered access control, I'm not aware of that many off the top of my head, although that doesn't mean much, as I'll unpack shortly. The second main use case is, is analytics, is doing like demographic calculations of people who go to a shop or people who go to a film or um, people who are using a website. Like, are women using our platform? Are men using our platform? What percentage of each? Are there places where we are like letting the side down, as it were. And as this sort of framing suggests, that's a very sort of profit oriented and like marketing oriented approach. And that's a lot more common. Generally speaking, whenever you see people talking about audience analysis or like facial recognition for like commercial purposes, there's going to be a gender recognition algorithm built in. And it's also really commonly used for the same reasons in uh, academic research. Like if you want to analyze Twitter or Tumblr or any other online platform, a lot of people are like, oh, if I use AGR, then I can analyze like a million accounts without having to do anything except hit a button and run some code. And then the third use case, which sounds very innocuous, but really isn't, is they often phrase it as for purely computational purposes. That's why we want to do gender recognition. And what they mean by this is, is this. If you have like a general facial recognition system to like determine, you know, is, a, is the person that the camera is seeing in this database or that database or no database at all? That's a very like intensive process because if you have a database of say a million faces, then you need to take a picture of the person work it out, like, you know, process it so that it is makes sense to this algorithm, and then compare what you find to 
anywhere between one and all of the entries in the database you're comparing against. And this is very time intensive, very processor intensive, and it is also sort of not great for the person who's being checked because it means if you think about it, like the computer might instantly say that everything is fine or it might take like a good 30 seconds. And so the idea that people have come up with is, okay, if we do gender recognition as well, and we have sort of like gender labels in the big database of faces that we're comparing against, then we can instantly cut the number of comparisons we need to do by half. Because we're not saying, is this face in this database? We're saying, is this face in the bit of the database of men, which is men? The reason I bring this up as like both innocuous and dangerous is because a lot of the times these systems, as I sort of alluded to, are like, have like very, very rigid ideas of, of gender. And that means that the algorithm might look at you and decide that you aren't a woman, even though the database says that you are a woman. And at that point, who knows what happens when it tries to see if you're there. Maybe it says that you're not there at all and you just don't exist. And the problem here is is that because these uses tend to be wrapped up in other systems, like general facial recognition systems, it's pretty much impossible without sort of seeing all of the code inside the machine to know whether that's being done. And that means that the answer to like, you know, where is this being used is somewhere between the places I've seen and literally everywhere facial recognition is. And we can't tell where in that range the answer is. Have you got an example of that? There was this case a few months ago of Uber's apps rejecting the selfies from transgender women. And, you know, this is a pretty big deal. The sort of selfie checking mechanism is basically designed to like check that the driver is who they are meant to be. And therefore, if you fail the system, then you can't drive and you can't get paid. This disproportionate rate of failure for transgender women could have been because more trans women like don't match their driver's licenses than is the norm. Or it could be that, that we're looking at a system that just really isn't designed to deal with women's faces full stop because they tend to be designed by men. But it could very well be that the answer is someone's driver's license said one gender and the algorithm said their face was of a different gender. And so the reason that it didn't match to them was because they, as far as the database was concerned, didn't exist. And from the outside, it's impossible to tell because Uber tends not, for some unknown reason, to let me just scurry around in their code and sort of see how everything works. Apparently, they sort of like to th keep things confidential. And this means that it becomes very difficult to even work out how widespread this is or like how dangerous the consequences might be because nobody has to tell you when they're doing it or how or even the reason why a system didn't work or did. Amazing Oz, thank you, that's a really great explanation. And is this always facial scanning technology or is, does it sometimes involve voice recognition technology? It, it sometimes involves voices and sometimes involves lots of other stuff as well. There's uh, gait recognition, so trying to work out your gender from how you walk, which is hilarious to me um, because I just imagine uh, these these researchers being like, yeah, there's a remarkable difference in like how people of different genders walk. And then someone pointing out that it's probably because a lot of women are going to start running when you start chasing them with a camera yelling, it's for science. That kind of silliness aside, yeah, voices are, are pretty common. I haven't seen them deployed as frequently, I'll be perfectly honest. But part of that may just be like 
people know me as the like gender facial recognition person and so the stuff that people tend to bring to my attention or the stuff that i see is biased as a result but it is increasingly uh, prominent there's this experiment being done in uh, indiana in the united states which is basically going to be trying to use ai to combat recidivism so when people get out on parole after getting out of jail all of these like algorithmic technologies will be deployed to monitor them and to try and work out whether they've kept to their conditions or not and part of that involves basically automated parole check-ins to like make sure that the person is where they say they are and all the rest and they they're planning on using like voice recognition to do that like to make sure that the person who picks up the phone is the person who who is meant to and and the moment i heard this i was kind of horrified the consequences of missing a check-in with a parole officer are pretty high and by that i mean being returned to prison and you don't want someone returned to prison because an algorithm got it wrong and like how do you appeal that is there an appeal mechanism it's not clear so so we are seeing it like appear and appear in like very dangerous looking ways but it doesn't seem to be as common which in some ways i think makes sense because the appeal of facial recognition i think to the people developing these systems has always been that you literally don't have to interact with the person you can just have a camera on the top of a building somewhere and they consent to being like scanned and analyzed by walking in the place voice recognition there would be a bit different because you'd either have to literally bug the the public or actively you know like interact and make the person say a certain number of stock phrases or something and so it's it's at least something that i think receives like less prominent funding if not less funding and you believe that we should ban agr altogether is that right by sheer accident or not accident but they kind of i, I was very flattered to be asked to be involved because frankly i'm not the one doing the heavy lifting here but i am currently involved with a group of like researchers and and activists largely led by the group all out in in a campaign to try and get agr banned in all of europe ideally i would suggest banning it everywhere but with the european union's sort of new ai regulations i think that's a a pretty good place to get the ball rolling um because there is this you know active effort to regulate technology and to have a conversation around like what are the kinds of things we're okay with what are the kinds of things we're not and so it's a a good starting point right and just to talk a little bit more about why we should ban it i suppose part of the reason is this it, it it literally excludes people that are gender non-conforming and also excludes people perhaps that are non-binary so this technology could place them into a male or female gender category based on for example their facial structure when they indeed don't identify with either category so it's erasing those people yeah and and it's the kind of erasure that has like small scale and also large scale consequences or maybe more accurately like immediate and also more long term consequences like the immediate consequences i i feel like uh, things we've already touched on questions of like okay if you're designing this technology to like strongly gender people around places like the toilet and then having people alerted when someone sort of doesn't match or doesn't conform the track record of uh trans people interacting with police is not a good track record and the track record of trans people's experiences of sort of like being surveilled in bathrooms is also not a good one and it it seems ludicrous for people to believe that the consequence of this won't be sort of like increasing surveillance increasing harassment and sort of like the technological weaponization of a lot of the the rhetoric that we've seen out of particularly the the right wing segments of the sort of like 80s cultural feminist movement in the UK and in Europe more broadly 
uh, over the last couple of years. But the the longer term consequences or more or the more systemic consequences, I think, are, are also interesting, which is if you end up in a situation where sort of like gender norms are heavily policed and only rigid, really rigid ideas of what it means to be correctly gendered are possible, then that is in and of itself going to simultaneously like narrow the range of experiences that we can articulate or see and also encourage people pretty strongly to conform to these really rigid norms. You know, I mentioned that researchers are using sort of like AGR a lot on on places like Twitter. Another way of putting it is that like researcher methods around Twitter make it literally impossible for anyone to ask questions like how do non-binary people use Twitter or even how do women with short hair use Twitter? Because when I say that these are really rigid and outdated gender norms, I mean it. The broader question there, I guess, and maybe this is the more philosophical Eve one, is, okay, if we have these technologies with these really rigid ideas of gender and they are directly pleasing people by literally pleasing them and also indirectly pleasing people by just communicating like you do or do not count depending on how you adhere to these norms, then... Surely all we've really done is trained like AI to reflect the absolute worst of growing up in society, of being told like you are or are not feminine enough or masculine enough. Those braids should be uh, shorter, that skirt should be longer. No, the other way around. And I personally feel, and I feel like a lot of people would agree with this, that we kind of have enough problems already with the ways that people enforce and police these really rigid ideas of gender without training machines to take up some of the heavy lifting. Totally. So in a way, this is also a feminist issue. I wanted to ask you at this point, what would be a better way of doing things? For instance, you know, allowing people to categorise themselves, would that would that be a better way of doing things? So yeah, there's like the the social answer and then there's the philosophical answer. I think the social answer is, yeah, like self-identification and self-categorisation would absolutely sort of work better. I think another part of it, and and myself and a, a couple of collaborators wrote a paper on this recently, actually, is, you know, we keep saying gender, but what we mean by that is not one thing. It's usually like 30 different things. And depending on, you know, the actual questions you're trying to answer or the actual things you're trying to work out, the answer, the, the actual question, it can look very different. Like sometimes the question you're asking is, okay, how should I treat this person? And for that, you want to know, like, okay, how does this person want to be treated? Sometimes you want to know, broadly speaking, like, how is this person probably treated in society? And for that, you want to know almost, like, how are people perceived? And if your question is, what is their experience of this treatment? Then you're going to want both how they're perceived and also how this conflicts or doesn't with how they want to be treated. And I guess like what I'm getting at in kind of a rambly way is like around like these kind of sort of big surveillance infrastructures and like technologies, like I, I think that they should be banned for the simple reason that banning them is necessary to even allow the space for things like self-identification and asking more like complex and interesting and thoughtful questions about gender to even be possible. When the easiest solution is the wrong solution, we're going to keep doing the wrong solution. In your opinion, how can we build AI to be as inclusive as possible and specifically queer inclusive? I, I guess I'd say when it comes to making technology more inclusive and more queer inclusive, 
we need to really start with the fundamentals. Like, I think there is this idea of, you know, you can make technology more inclusive if you have stakeholder meetings or something, right? If you like get people together and they all in focus groups and they all say like, this is good, this is bad. But really, I think that, that what we actually need to do is fundamentally revisit the very basis on which we build technology, because too often the way we build technology is built around kind of a, a sort of universalism, right? It's built around this idea of, I've provided the one solution to this problem that will work everywhere. And of course, in practice, it never works like that. You know, you've provided a solution that will work 80% eh, of the time in the places you thought of and 0% of the time in the places you didn't. And that's fine because nobody can think of everything all the time. The place we get a problem is this focus on universalism basically leads to a focus on like, how can we make it work everywhere all at once? And if there is a problem that someone brings up, well, then we need to change the system everywhere and you need to overcome this like universal idea, which is a pretty big thing to challenge. And so rather than say like, okay, we're doing, instead of doing this one thing everywhere, we should do this other thing everywhere. To me, like making technology queer inclusive has to start with making technology contextual. It has to start with saying, okay, what we're building, what its consequences are, what problems it solves, whether it solves any problems at all, is ultimately always going to be dependent on where it's released and like what it's being used for. And so rather than say, you know, how can we make one specific queer inclusive technology for like recognizing gender or something or inferring gender, the question instead becomes like, okay, how can we design technology that works in the spaces we're interested in and that doesn't make claims to be the solution everywhere? And so doesn't cut off the possibility that other people and other communities have for finding their own answers to those questions. And to me, a lot of, yeah, a lot of it ultimately comes down to the need to, to take context into account, to say, we're not trying to fix every problem all at once. And if we've learned one thing from Silicon Valley over the last few years, it's how dangerous it is to claim to be wizards or unicorns or that, you know, any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. Technology is social. And that doesn't just mean that it has implications for society. It also means that it reflects society. And we don't live in one big society. We live in lots of different communities with lots of different overlapping concerns. And to me, the, the like crucial thing from which everything else flows is starting with this recognition that we're not trying to save the world. We're not trying to solve one thing. We are trying to uh, solve all problems. We are trying to solve one very specific issue in one very specific case. And if our solution doesn't work in other spaces, that's expected. And that's a reason to adapt the solution, not a reason to dismiss the people it doesn't work for. You mentioned at the beginning that you teach. I wondered, how are you feeling about diversity in STEM? Are you feeling like things are improving? I am seeing some positive notes around people taking the opposite tack, like particularly younger scholars, queer scholars, scholars of colour, realising that the problem is the system, not who the, just who the system like lets in the door and starting to ask like, you know, instead of like, how do we get the number of like gender minorities in an engineering department to be 50% instead asking, how do we integrate like thinking consciously and critically and respectfully about gender into 
the courses that this engineering department takes. So taking the approach of like, the problem isn't just who shows up, the problem is also the assumptions about like what you do once you get in. And so yeah, I'm in this weird oscillating space of like, on the one hand, I see a lot of efforts that are very stereotypical that are like, we hired someone for diversity and inclusion. So now you can't complain. But I do also see like people like pitching like radical and critical courses about design and engineering and like technology ethics and like post-colonial approaches to gender theory to faculty in engineering departments. I'm hopeful that those conversations are going to be more than conversations, that they're going to turn into like people teaching these courses. But I can't express sufficiently my joy at like seeing people get fired up enough to pitch this, at like just seeing that that possibility be raised and that conversation start where it previously just wouldn't have even made sense as a discussion to have. Amazing, thank you. And my final question is, how will you be celebrating Pride this June? It's it's gonna be, that's a great question. I'm like, well, that depends on uh, vaccine coverage. I strongly suspect that I'm gonna be celebrating Pride in a way that is simultaneously cheesy, stupid, and also like very close to my heart, which is I'm gonna be celebrating Pride by basically just reaching out to all my queer students and colleagues and friends and and just like saying hi and reaffirming that, that there is a relation there and that they matter to me because to me, you know, people say pride is about community. And I think a lot of the time people think of like the big marches and the big protests, but that's only once a year. To me, community is about everything else as well. It's about all the informal like contacts and like the little social touches to say that someone matters and that they are a delight to have around. And, and so I think I'm going to spend my pride month just reaching out to people and being vulnerable and hoping they do the same in return. Thank you so, so, so much. Thanks for listening to this Future Positive podcast. If you'd like to support our show, share this episode with fellow futurist friends, and remember to subscribe, rate, and leave a review on Apple or wherever you get your pods. Your feedback does help. This podcast comes from XPRIZE, a global future positive movement of over 1 million people and rising, delivering radical breakthroughs for the benefit of humanity. Sign up to join us and support the movement that is making a change in the world 10 times faster. Whether it's lending a hand, a dollar, or an idea, we all have a role to play in making the future a better place. The only way to get the future we want is to create it ourselves. Learn more at xprize.org. See you next week. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. 
the secret to visibly firmer, summer-ready skin is here. Osea's number one best-selling Andaria Algae Body Oil. Clinically proven to instantly improve skin elasticity and transform dull, dry skin to silky, soft, and unbelievably glowing. Rich yet never greasy, Andaria Algae Body Oil is formulated with sustainably sourced seaweed to help replenish the skin's moisture barrier and seven nourishing active botanical oils for results you can see and feel all over. The best part? It's signature scent. A blend of freshly squeezed grapefruit, cypress, and mango mandarin transports you to sun-kissed summer days. This all-natural scent is unforgettable. Everything Osea makes is clean, vegan, cruelty-free, and climate-neutral certified, so you never have to choose between your values and your best skin. Get healthy, glowing skin for summer with clean, vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order site-wide with code GLOW at oseamalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A-Malibu.com code GLOW.